we are live. Thank you everybody for joining us and welcome to Connected Learning TV. This is the second webinar in our series this month on creating student upstanders in today's world. Um, if you are watching us live today, we encourage you to let your friends know and invite others to join us. Um, my name is Mary Hendrum. I'm the Associate Program Director for Facing History and Ourselves here in Los Angeles, and I'm thrilled to be moderating these webinars this month. We started our series last week with a webinar on creating safe and reflective classroom communities as a foundation for students to start to develop their sense of agency and a recognition of their own voice in the world. And this week we continue by really looking closely at having a deep curriculum, looking at the Holocaust and human behavior. I'm thrilled to be joined today by a number of guests, Dr. Michael Berenbaum, Elaine Ornieri Nunn, Annie Brown here with me, um, and running just a few minutes late, Dan Alba will also be joining us as soon as he is able to connect. So let's uh, give a few logistics things before we get started. Um, for those who are watching live, we encourage you to share your comments and questions with us throughout the webinar. If you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag ConnectedLearning or the hashtag Upstander. And you can also use the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. We'll do our best to address any questions that are posted during the, during the time here in the Google Hangout. Um, this webinar is also being co-streamed by the National Writing Project on EducatorInnovator.org. And with that, let's meet our guests. Michael, would you like to start us off introducing yourself? and then I'll be. let me unmute and then I'll begin I hope you can hear me now okay my name is Michael Birnbaum I'm a professor of Jewish studies and director of the Ziggy Ziering Institute at the, uh, which explores the ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust at the American Jewish University I'm probably uh, best known as uh, the person who helped develop the United States Holocaust more museum and then went on to um, develop and expand the uh, survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation. I've written widely on the Holocaust and on other genocides as well. Thank you. And Elaine, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hi there. My name is Elaine Guarneri Nunn. I'm the director of the San Francisco Bay Area Office of Facing History and Ourselves. Um, I was a classroom teacher for um, a number of years in New York, Los Angeles, and most recently in Hayward. Um, I worked at Facing History in um, Los Angeles and now am leading the office in San Francisco. And I uh, first came to Facing History about 20 years ago and taught it for a number of years in, in Los Angeles. Thank you. And Annie? Um, my name is Annie Brown. I'm a middle and high school teacher here in Los Angeles. I work at the Marlboro School in Hancock Park neighborhood. Um, and I first was trained with Facing History in Boston um, my second year of teaching, which is about 15 or 16 years ago. Um, so when I moved to Los Angeles, I started working with the LA, the LA office here. 
Thank you. And while you're talking, let's have you start us off. What does it look like? Let's give everybody a concrete picture. What does it look like to teach the Holocaust with this approach of the Holocaust and human behavior? Um, I think it, teaching the Holocaust can look very different depending on the focus. So many people study the Holocaust through literature. A lot of English teachers um, teach the Holocaust. Many people in a history class could just maybe read a textbook or just um, have a lecture. So I think the human behavior approach is very unique um, and it allows um, a shift from sort of the specific historic event to a more universal. So instead of thinking about what happened um, to this group of people like the Jews or including gypsies or Jehovah's Witness, which might be kind of... Um, distant from students. Maybe they don't know anyone who's a Jehovah's Witness um, and they think maybe just Hitler was just a certain evil person, very evil person, um, or that the Germans were very gullible or easily manipulated. Um, it can move that to thinking of how do humans behave um, and what in human nature allowed for people to be susceptible to a dictator or um, allowed for some kind of atrocities to happen. I think um, one of my favorite questions to explore with students is what makes ordinary people commit these atrocities and I think um, more generally just why would good people do terrible things and this starts to bring the conversation away from um, the specific incident which is important to study but thinking about how we each behave what kinds of things um, within socio the study of sociology and psychology influence us um, why are we obedient in certain situations? Why is belonging important to us? Um, why do we value membership? Um, and so I think those kinds of things bring it to the universal and help students to connect to the topic. Thank you. And let's look at the other part of that. It's Holocaust and human behavior. You gave us a great sense of how that makes it different. Michael, Holocaust, why is it important today for young people to study the Holocaust? You know, I, I answer that convolutedly by saying I wish it were not important. Um, my dream in life is to become irrelevant and have to change profession. And by that I mean essentially to say that the issues of genocide, of racism, and anti-Semitism were to go away. And if I could think of the perfect ending for both the museum or uh, even the curriculum of facing history, is look how awful 20th century humanity behaved to one another and look how much we've learned in the 21st century as to how not to behave toward one another. The reality is that that's not the case. Um, you know, last week at this time I was at West Point and I was at West Point because West Point is launching a study of Holocaust and genocide and they're launching a study of Holocaust and genocide not because they want to remember the past, but because they want to be prepared for the future that the U.S. Army might face, which is intervention in areas which are undergoing real or potential genocides and that are experiencing all of the issues that lead up to genocidal behavior. They want to understand the victim, they want to understand the perpetrator, they want to understand the bystander, they want to understand the upstander, and they want to understand conditions that lead to that one can predict patterns of behavior and, again, how to respond in this situation. 
because unfortunately the Holocaust is not irrelevant. Let me add one other um, thought to this, which is, uh, and I'm not being cute when I say I wish I were irrelevant. I wish I were a, an antique of a different era and a different range of concern and could think about this in a very different way. Unfortunately, we can't. But let me add one other thing. Look, the Holocaust is one of those enormously important events that shape our common understanding of our collective humanity. It's a moment uh, which, it's not a moment, it's an event that evolved over 12 years that ultimately consumed uh, 22 different countries that amassed the two great Western monotheistic religions, or at least two or three Western monotheistic religions. Judaism and Christianity implicated in a minor way Islam and uh, implicated all the forms of government. It was reflective of Western civilization and not only an aberration of Western civilization. And unfortunately, it, um, the forces that led to it may not only have a past, but they may have a future as well. Thank you. Some powerful words there in, in terms of um, shaping our collective humanity, and I, which I think we'll come back to throughout this webinar. Um, Elaine, I'm, I'm, since you've seen both Southern and Northern California, what happens when this kind of curriculum is used? Um, I thought you could maybe share some insight with us, because it may seem surprising to some people that given the demographics of, of the state of California, that that the study of the Holocaust would really resonate with young people. But I've seen that happen time and again, both with my own students and with other students in the classroom. Um, what, what do you think it is that helps students of varied backgrounds connect with this study of the Holocaust? Right. So you're absolutely right, Mary. We live in a minority-majority state. We have a state where 50% of our K-12 through students are Latino, 25% are white, and the rest evenly split between African-American and Asian. Um, and we, California, is leading the, the wave of the demographic change that we see um, happening. Um, I will speak from um, the, our program perspective, but also from a, as a classroom teacher, where when I taught um, Facing History and the Holocaust in an in-depth way, I taught it at a school where it was 98% uh, Mexican-American, and it I, I, like you, found my students uh, resonating with this history. And I think it really speaks to what Annie has, what Annie and Dr. Berenbaum have described thus far. It's a, a human story. And so by looking at human behavior and how it uh, played out in this society that was being fractured, where neighbor was turning against neighbor, it allows students to make connections. Um, facing history begins with um, looking at the individual and society. So it looks at, it begins with where students are, with inclusion and exclusion, whether to participate in, um, in a bullying incident. It looks at the upstander and perpetrator behavior and so therefore when you start to really dive deep into the history and look at the stories of what occurred um, in Germany and 
in Europe in World War II, students can then start to make connections. So, for instance, when I would show a particular clip of a survivor test of a survivor who experienced and describes what it was like to be um, uh, a young child during Kristallnacht and seeing both perpetrator behavior and and rescue if you will or somebody who was reaching out um, students can make connections to things that are going on in their own life to the uh, the universal questions of why would somebody participate in group violence um, what do you do when that occurs and they bring in their own stories um, both on the playground but also um, sometimes in communities which are hit with that type of um, with that type of violence Great. Any, anything you would like to add about how students have responded to a study of the Holocaust? Um, yeah, um, I think it's interesting because it's a very emotional unit for students, um, regardless of their background. So I work at a private girls' school now, so there's um, one demographic, and I before that I worked at a charter school where I think the population was like 97% Latino, sort of a, a range of Latino. Um, but all students have very strong responses. Um, some responses are sadness, anger, sort of pity, which we could move towards empathy or something. Um, and so it's a very emotional unit. And for many students, it's their favorite unit of the year, which also um, is an interesting idea of yeah. your favorite unit being something horrendous um, beyond comprehension almost. Um, I think um, it reminds me of a Philip Gorovich article about what they saw at the Holocaust Museum where people are writing comments in the Holocaust Museum, cool and excellent and I loved it or something. So um, thinking of how to make it a deeper experience and I think Elaine touched on some of the things um, that I think make it a deeper experience where the kids can really connect and some of that is related to um, again, the way you teach it, and I think um, for people who aren't familiar with facing history, there's a specific scope and sequence that facing history uses to um, teach students about the Holocaust. So it begins, like Elaine was mentioning, sort of with ourselves or with identity and who we are, looking at who Jews were and how they were defined, defined by themselves, defined more by others in the 1930s, um, when whether you're religious or not, um, you were told that you were now you had to fit in this category of Jew. So students in the middle and high school years are really interested in defining themselves. Um, they don't want anyone else to define them. Um, so identity is a, a great place to begin with students, but then Facing History moves to um, sort of the individual and society and how um, we divide, when we define ourselves, we also are defining others. Um, so we are like this, they are like that, and so membership and belonging, which again is another major theme for young people. How do we fit in to our classroom? How do we fit into society? Um, so all of these levels um, that are, again, not the specific, we can, we do the specific um, history material, but also these concepts. And then we move towards the, the, con the in-depth content of um, the case study of the Holocaust, but um, and back to what I was mentioning before, like obedience and things like that. Yeah. Great. So, um, and we are going to step back into that in just a minute and look at that case study, but I see that um, Dan has been able to join us, so before we go further, I wanted to give him a minute just to introduce himself briefly to the group. Um, <coughs> I'm losing my voice. <coughs> Excuse me. My name is Dan Alba, and I'm with uh, Facing History and Ourselves, and I've been a classroom teacher for 
16 years in the Los Angeles Unified School District, and uh, I've been facing history now for, I believe this is my 21st year. Great, thank you. Um, so, Michael, um, Annie was talking about how we can come into this and in looking at this case study, and um, I, I know one of the things that has impressed teachers at our seminars is when we go through and really you help us think about the small steps that lead to dismantling democracy in Germany. And I wondered if you could um, give us a, a, the capsule version, the brief version of you know what what was it? How did, did it didn't happen overnight, right? What were some of the small steps that that led to a dismantling of democracy? First of all, Mary, uh, let me set let me set one ground rule, which is that uh, Annie's too polite, she, and uh, she's referring to me as Dr. Birnbaum. We're having conversation, unless you're going to call me by my multiple titles and spend about 15 minutes on that. Michael is sufficient. People have called me worse. Um, uh, secondly, um, let's take a look at the rise of. Uh, the Nazis. Um, the rise of the Nazi party is essentially the story of a democracy that failed to function, about the collapse of a center, about the resorting to, excuse me for one second, about resorting to violence, and then the idea that somehow if you put the extremes in power, they would be moderated and muted uh, by the situation in which they, in, in which they face. Essentially, Hitler came to power, um, there's a rule of the elephant in the tent. Sometimes you invite the elephant into the tent because you would rather that the elephant um, piss outward than piss inward. I guess I can use that term because we have teachers instead of students. And essentially, uh, the conservatives who put Hitler in power as part of a coalition government were afraid that um, he caused more damage on the outside. They felt they were wise enough, strong enough, and substantive enough to challenge him. And the most intriguing thing that happened, if you see the development in Nazi Germany, is that between January 30th, 1933, and July 14th, 1933, which is literally uh, a uh, six-month period. Um, and remember, July 14th is the day of the great French Revolution and its values of liberty, equality, and fraternity. In that short period of time, uh, Germany ceased to be a democracy, became a dictatorship, with the Nazi party being the lone party in power, the lone legitimate party in power within Nazi uh, Germany. So the demise was swift. The demise was also in part with the collapse of the center and extremism running rampant throughout. And I always have learned from that a very interesting political value. I'm looking for the passionate center. Usually in politics, passion is at the extremes. And I'm looking for people who are passionate about uh, being within the center and not at the extremes. It's an interesting thing that is one of the lessons to think about where is the passionate center in our own societies. Okay? Um, I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit, Michael, when I know um, 
when we when we look at this kind of what happens next, you have sometimes um, identified how you know there were steps to take away rights, you know that that were no. gradual at different points and. Um, yeah. Let me let me say that the eventually. Um, let me go back and I'll try to be brief and conversational about it. Um, Hitler told us what he was going to do. He told it to us in a book. There's a seamlessness about Hitler's iterations from 1919 onward, but he told it to us in a book called Mein Kampf, Mein Struggle, in which he, my struggle, in which he indicated what there was, what his platform was, including a racism and the German expansionism, looking for, in essence, um, uh, Lebensraum, living room for German nation. And what he tried to do at that point um, was to say what he, went, what he wanted to do. The Jews in his universe were not only inferior and subordinate to the great German nation, but they were defined as a very cancer on society. And being defined as a cancer on society legitimated their exclusion. Let me be graphic and unapologetically so. If I walk in and I uh, amputate the left breast of a woman, I'm a mutilator. If I walk in and I'm a physician, I say that, in essence, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have um, breast cancer and you need a mastectomy, then I'm a healer. And the definition of the Jews as a cancer means that their elimination was for the benefit of German society. We call it not only a, a, an anti-Semitism, but a redemptive anti-Semitism, where the elimination of the Jews redeemed the German people. He didn't implement that policy all at once. He implemented it gradually. When he first came to power, the first moves were not against the Jews. The first move were against social democrats and political opponents of the museum, hinted at what they were going to do with the April 1st boycott of Jewish businesses, April 1st, 33, the April 7th expulsion of Jews from civil service, including teachers teaching in school, including professors, including doctors, physicians uh, working in, in national hospitals, including uh, all sorts of bureaucrats and lawyers within the government. And on May 10th, he burned books and, uh, and uh, uh, Goebbels, who was his propaganda minister, said the age of international Jewish uh, dominance has ended. Then it slowed down for a while so that it saved the victims who felt that there was time and that this was as bad as it was going to be. And if this was as bad as it was going to be, they could live with it. There were other moments of intensification. After those moments of intensification, there was a waiting period for the reaction of the society, have I gone too far? Or a period of time in which uh, the victims got used to their circumstances. And once they got used to their circumstances, they then didn't take steps to leave. Let me give you a word about the victims, which is that um, Walter Walter has said something very interesting. He said, the pessimist left and the optimist died. And by that, what he meant was that if you believe that things were going to get worse, 
then you took steps to leave. If you didn't believe things were going to get worse, but this was as bad as it was going to be, and you could live with it, then you didn't take steps to leave. Later on, we'll see with regard to rescue that the pessimists said nothing could be done, and the optimists said we must try something. The pessimists won and nothing was done. So pessimism and optimism have a double uh, meaning, depending on whether you're a, uh, a victim or you're a rescuer or a potential rescuer. And uh, consequently, we have to face that. But you can look through over a period of time of hundreds of laws and regulations introduced from 33 through 39, um, which essentially isolated, segregated the Jew, expropriated their property, made it impossible for the Jew to live in Germany, and therefore the task was how do you leave Germany? But leaving Germany became problematic for two reasons. Number one, there was no country willing to receive the Jews in the manner in which they needed, in the numbers in which they needed to leave. And secondly, Germany started expanding, and once it expanded, it received more and more Jews. So uh, 150,000 Jews left Germany between 33 and March of 38, and one night when uh, Germany incorporated Austria, 200,000 more Jews came under German domination. When it incorporated uh, the parts of Czechoslovakia, another 90,000 Jews came under German domination. When it, it invaded Poland, 2 million Jews, and Poland was divided between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, 2 million Jews came under German control. If you want to get rid of Jews, you can't keep expanding and incorporating larger numbers of Jews, and that's one of the things that made annihilation from a German perspective, mass murder, extermination, the word that they use, that's what made it um, necessary and desirable, uh, and I use that not to say that I regard it as necessary or desirable, but if you have a policy that represents the elimination of the Jews, then this becomes absolutely central. Thank you for that. Um, Dan, you have taught this kind of progression in these steps and laws that, that Michael talked about for many years. Um, what do students learn by studying these as steps um, along the way? Uh, first of all, <clears throat> can you hear me? You can hear me, great. Um, the whole idea of STEPS is that uh, students have an opportunity to begin to uh, explore the range of choices at any given time during uh, this particular history. Uh, when we begin to study uh, the STEPS uh, when the Nazis came to power in 1933, uh, the choices that people had uh, uh, were more available in terms of their options than they were, let's say, in 1935 or by 1941. And by studying steps, they begin to understand uh, the whole notion of prevention. What are the signs? Uh, we often say that when Hitler came to power, he, he didn't just immediately throw uh, Jews into uh, death camps. Um, it's how do you prepare a nation uh, for that? Uh, 
And when you begin to look at the range of choices at every given year by ordinary people, um, it reveals some of the things that they were dealing with in terms of blind obedience to uh, uh, propaganda or uh, listening to uh, 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 the, the uh, heeding to, to, to laws that uh, uh, turn neighbor against neighbor. Uh, these affected ordinary people, and uh, by looking at steps, it reveals something about human behavior, about fear, about belonging, about the other. And uh, when we begin to examine those by ordinary people, um, kids walk away with this notion that uh, this history didn't have to happen, and that there were opportunities uh, for intervention, for prevention, um, and uh, these become lifelong lessons to start to think about. Uh, it doesn't have to get bad uh, when you begin to find the signs uh, early enough to speak up um, and and steps become sort of the small steps that kids are, are dealing with every day in their lives uh, when they start to think about how they create the other. The steps of dehumanization of language, um, the steps of othering, um, uh, this history teaches a lot about human behavior. So uh, I'm going to ask Annie to go a little bit further with one area. We've heard a number of people talk about these concepts of belonging, of obedience, pressures for conformity, of even of extremism. And it, it does seem like for students they might be able to connect with a feeling of peer pressure at times or something that way. What, what have you seen in terms of you know, teaching obedience or peer pressure or conformity in relation to the Holocaust? Um, well, first I think that um, Michael's point about complacency or about how people say we can live with it, so as changes are accumulating, um, things get slowed down enough so people can say, okay, this is, we, we can handle this um, and not, not fight back or not, not leave the country. So I think the small steps are very important um, and the small steps are important as Dan was saying, for the students as well, because students, um, the whole idea of stopping the Holocaust is overwhelming to a student, but um, thinking about small steps and choices, what would you do um, in this situation? And if you think naturally, we all identify with the victims. Um, we all think that we would have been in the Jew, the Jew role or the victim role and that we would have done something or that we, we would not have been a perpetrator. Nobody, no child thinks of themselves as a perpetrator. But um, then when you start to think about those small choices that Germans had to make, German citizens had to make, um, as laws are coming out, like are we going to fire the, well, Germany decided to fire the faculty of universities. Well, if that's your colleague, what will you do? Um, will you quit? You know, um, will you at least say something? Or will you just go along with it? Um, and many, many people took the easy route, which is the, the natural human choice is to take the easier route. So this this is what kids can start to connect to, to say if there is a bullying situation in school, and it might be small. Maybe someone just um, called someone a small name. Um, like, for example, when I worked with a large population of undocumented immigrants, if someone, um, you know, alien, illegal, there's lots of words that are very sensitive. So what when a touchy word comes out, are you the person who says something about it, or do you just let it slide because it's easier not to 
implicate, you know, put yourself in a bad situation. So I think uh, what Dan's talking about is how students can connect to this um, and make choices in their own lives. And these small choices that Germans made um, seemed very innocuous at the time, and they just made the choice that seemed in their best interest. And students often do that without realizing that maybe it's a moral choice, that it's not just a choice, that there is something uh, weighing on that choice. Yeah, it's such a good point, and I've heard some other teachers also talk about it in, in that in some ways it's um, it's helping students with a very tough mirror reflection that we have within ourselves the capacity for evil as well as good, and that that can then emphasize the importance of our choices, right? that they really do make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to... To bring us to, to focus in a little bit more on that choices now, um, with this setting, we know that those who chose to stand up to resist and to rescue, um, particularly the rescue side of things, was a small minority of the population, um, and yet we can learn a tremendous amount from that. And so um, I would love for each person to share. I think we, each of us that has been involved in the study of the Holocaust for any time develops those favorite stories of individuals who give us hope, who remind us of the humanity, even in really horrendous situations, um, and, and are the ones that we like to share with, with students or with colleagues or even with you know, friends or, or spouses. And so could we each go around and share some of those stories um, at this point? Let me let me begin to make it a little bit uh, a drop more complex. Uh, part of the reason why the Holocaust is so interesting, and you said uh, uh, how the students are fascinated by it, is because of its intensity. It was a matter of life and death, and life and death many times. Let me tell one story of a woman by the name of Flora. Her name is Flora Singer. She wrote about it, and it's, it's a wonderful story because I want us to understand how we can identify with everybody. Flora was a Jewish girl who couldn't find a place to hide in uh, Belgium. And the head of Belgium resistance brought her home to his home. And uh, she uh, was sent to bed. It was time for her. She was nine years old. She was sent to bed. And then she overheard a conversation. The wife said, my dear, I love you deeply and I respect you enormously. And part of the reason I respect you is because of what you're doing under these circumstances. But I will not have you endanger my children. I'm prepared to become a widow, but I'm not prepared to lose my children at the same time. This girl cannot stay in this home. She, she then um, said that her kids were complaining that they couldn't have an ordinary teenage life because the girl was staying in their home. They couldn't bring friends home after school. They couldn't have their dates come over to pick them up to go out at night. And they couldn't have all of the ordinary life that teenagers enjoy. Um, Flora then walked in and said, I'm leaving. And the husband, who is head of Belgium Resistance, said, uh, this is an adult conversation. It has nothing to do with you. Go back to your room and go to sleep. <laughs> 
Now, what makes the and he later, a couple of days later, found a place to place her away from his home. What makes the situation so interesting is that we can identify with all of the players in that situation. The heroic leader of the resistance who sees a child, cannot abandon that child, becomes the rescuer. The wife who is uh, supportive and respectful of her husband's choices, uh, but says there are limits, meaning that I'm prepared to lose you, but not my children. The teenagers who know what their father is doing respect what their father is doing, but regard it as difficult because they want the ordinary life of a teenager and their young teenagers before war, before the age of war, they want the ordinary life of a teenager with the freedom that that affords. And the circumstances that are dire for the victim because her place in that place was a matter of life or death for her. And the way in which, as a brave 10-year-old, she says, okay, I'm leaving, and then the husband says, no, you're not. This is really an issue for us to deal with. Look, there are many heroes in this story, too few, but many. And we have to also distinguish between, it, and, and I once wrote about it, um, you know, with the perpetrators, we often call them ordinary people. Christopher Browning's book is called Ordinary Men. And I said that one of the things that we do is we often misidentify the rescuers by calling them righteous among the nations of the earth when most of them just merely aspire to be decent. Decent and honorable in a situation where honor was the height of nobility. And But I want us to understand the circumstances and the demands that rescue made not only on the rescuer but on the rescuer's family and um, on the people who knew about what was happening and who agreed in a certain network to be a conspiracy not to tell. Thank you for sharing that story. It's wonderfully complex and gives a lot to think about. Elaine, do you want to share? Sure. Um, I mean, there are so many. Um, I The one, though, that I would like to describe now, I found really resonates with students, and it's something that both um, Michael and Annie touched on. We have a reading in our resource book, The Holocaust and Human Behavior, called um, Taking Over the Universities, which is a very short Piece, but it looks at very early on 1933 uh, when Jewish faculty were expelled out of universities and the story, the, the testimony is from um, uh, Peter Drucker who talks about the day that the faculty were assembled um, at his particular university and the Nazi Kamsar comes in and uh, starts to um, attack Jewish faculty with very anti-Semitic language um, and in, says that all faculty are dismissed and says, looking at the audience, pointing his finger, and says, and if anybody objects, you will go to a concentration camp. And there was utter silence. And the one of the most respected and most liberal, liberal professors in this university, which everybody was looking to as a, as a role model, stopped and said, raised his hand, 
get that information clearly. Can you please tell me whether there there will be money for uh, research? And that's and the answer was yes. There will be a, a lot of money for racial science, but the lack of um, protest at that moment um, stunned. Uh, Peter, who then decided to leave 48 hours later. Um, and so I, I think I like to look at that story because, again, like Michael said, it really explores the range of human behavior. Um, and students can pick apart that. Why would somebody stay? Why would somebody, uh, why would somebody leave? And so it's really students are allowed to um, flex their moral muscle, if you will, to really explore the range of uh, the range of choices. So um, I, that's one of my particular favorites as a classroom teacher that that occurred early on that really exposes the range of human behavior. Thank you. Dan, what about you? Um, yes, I um, uh, first of all, I just want to make sure that you can hear me. Uh, can you have a thumbs up or something? Can you hear me? Okay, thank you. Um, the one one video that I'm I'm, I'm thinking about is uh, Courage to Care. It's it, it's a wonderful uh, number of stories of non-Jews who uh, intervened and, and and saved others. Um, it's uh, it's it's interesting um, that um, it, it's just amazing. By the by the end of the war, uh, the Nazis had had, had murdered um, about 110. Uh, thousand uh, Jews of the Netherlands out of 140 that were there. Um, yet um, uh, within that time frame, um, a woman by the name of Miriam Pritchard, a very young woman at the time, about the age of uh, uh, well, she had been hiding Jews already for about three years. Um, but she does recall an incident uh, where she witnessed uh, uh, Nazis uh, throwing young crying children into trucks uh, to be uh, uh, deported. And um, she also saw two women uh, trying to intervene and uh, the Nazis also threw them into the trucks. And so she, she was, uh, th that, that moment, it could have changed either way. She could have said, this is too risky and I'm, I'm not going to do it. In fact, it, um, it reassured her how important rescue was for her. And that had much to do with her parents and, and growing up, uh, as she reveals later on. Um, but there's a point where um, as she was at one of these these homes where she was saving uh, children, a Dutch policeman came and um, they were checking and looking for, for Jews. Um, uh, many times you know, officers would, would come back 30 minutes later uh, just to see maybe uh, some of the hiding Jews are out. Um, so this particular uh, Dutch policeman um, came in and um, saw that there were Jews hiding and Miriam Pritchard had uh, really kind of a choiceless choice at that time and so she had a role and she, she killed and shot uh, the Dutch policeman. Um, it took a couple of people including a, a local baker to uh, agree to remove the body and uh, it was actually put uh, into a coffin with another body uh, so that they could hide it so uh, uh, nobody could uh, uh, discover uh, what happened to the Dutch policeman. Um, and, and, and she talks about, uh, uh, what she says is, I, I had to go on and I had to stay strong uh, for the families. And she said that, I wish it hadn't been necessary, uh, but it was the better of two evils. 
Um, and it's a remarkable um, story of a young woman who had to do the right thing with little choice because she knew the consequences of what would happen to those who were hiding. Um, so her story is one that I'll, I'll always remember. And uh, I believe she, she went on to become a, a psychiatrist and uh, was working with many, many young people and uh, others uh, uh, with trauma in their lives. But that was the sort of her, her, her legacy. And uh, I believe that her life shaped uh, her professional career and choices. Thank you. Let, let, me, let me add um, a, a very short story which um, also tells, um, since we've spoken and correctly so about the lack of courage of university professors, of men and women who should have known otherwise, let me tell a, a, a short story. Sometimes you don't know what will come of the small gestures that you make. Uh, my teacher, Abraham Joshua Heschel, told the story of how he got his doctorate. Um, he, um, in Germany in those days, he had finished his doctorate. You had to get a published book, and he had his, got his book published. And then his uh, professor came to him and said, you know, let's finish up today. Let me walk you up to the registrar's office, and let's get your documents signed. Uh, let's get the entire process completed today. Walked them up, walked them through the process, which is not something that an ordinary German professor would have done under ordinary times. Several days later, it became impossible for Jewish students to get degrees from German universities. And it was clear to Heschel in retrospect that his professor knew and knew this was coming down the pike, and without telling him, decided that he would engage in a small gesture of solidarity with a student who obviously was gifted. Now, because Heschel had a doctorate, he became eligible to be one of the five scholars saved by Hebrew Union College, which brought great scholars to five rabbinical students and five um, promising Judaic scholars to the United States under a special exemption from the quota. And then he had the career of Abraham Joshua Heschel, but he really owed it to one university professor who decided that knowing what was coming down the pike and without, as it were, endangering himself too much, he would help his students and bring him through the degree. So rescue depended on thousands of gestures, some large, some small, some of great nobility, and some merely of human courtesy. Uh, and we sometimes don't know how far those can take us. Thank you for sharing that story as well. Annie, what about you? Uh, actually, I appreciate all the stories that I just heard, thinking of the personal courage that it takes um, and thinking about how much, how complex the decision to do something is, even if it's sometimes in the spur of the moment, but there are consequences. Um, and how um, also like banal it can all be that you, you're, you know, you're at your job and then you're facing this like Peter Drucker was facing a decision um, for since I'll share a different kind of story that I think is kind of interesting which is um, like the diplomats who did things mm. so one of them I like to 
tell the students about is um, a Japanese man, Sugihara, who was writing visas, transit visas, um, and it's sort of a complex thing to explain to students what that would even be, but um, explaining that people couldn't get out. So how to, um, how if you are a diplomat, to use your position to do something, um, and um, and also just the idea that a Japanese diplomat is involved. This is not just this is a worldwide situation. Um, it's not just Germans and Jews. To open it up for students to realize that the world war is world war, and that the people involved are very diverse. Um, but also, I think one story um, that I find inspiring, sort of in the in the way that Dan's, Dan said it in a sort of understated way, but that woman shot the policeman that came to her house. It's very shocking. Um, so. On the other side, there's a story of a man who just recently died. I think he was like 106. Um, maybe he wasn't that old. Nicholas Winton. Um, he's a British man, and he also um, was writing visas for children. Um, but one thing that students find very powerful um, is there's a video. I, I believe it's just a uh, 60 minutes. You know, the, pro the television program, 60 minutes. A video. There's maybe a 20-minute segment that explains that tells his story. Um, but there's a moment, and I think it's from television in the 1980s. Um, maybe 90s or something, uh, sort of a blurry um, British television program where he is in an, a TV audience and um, they recognize him for saving so many people through writing visas and then it turns out the whole rest of the audience surrounding him is are all also um, are the people he actually saved. Now they're grown up, they were children at the time and they yeah. stand up and it's just a very emotional um, moment. So I think um, the rest, the, I appreciate the complexity of the rescuers, you know, choices, but also for students, the Holocaust can be such a depressing and demoralizing thing to study. So this idea of focusing on rescuers or focusing on people who didn't say, I can't do anything, but did what they could, whether it was those small gestures that Michael's talking about, um, I think that really inspires students and um, instills in them some a sense of responsibility that if yeah. if someone else could stand up against these you know, immeasurable odds. Um, not, you know, there's someone who tried to assassinate Hitler, but it's not that. You don't have to try and assassinate Hitler. You can um, do small things to help people maintain their humanity. Um, like Michael was saying, the decent, just being decent to people under these circumstances um, is an impressive thing. Thank you, and and I. I've been thinking of so many stories just listening to each one of you as well that, that resonated with my students and I think exactly as you said that it's the power of them seeing individual choices made by people that are not in the history textbooks, that are not considered these extraordinary individuals but ordinary people who made choices that were decent right, um, in a very difficult time. So let's end, we have just a few more minutes, let's end time back to our big theme for this whole month. Um, we've been talking about how do we help students become upstanders today. How does this study of the Holocaust um, contribute to students deciding to stand up themselves today in their own classrooms, in their own lives? Well, the, real, the reality is students are given role models of what they should aspire to. And one of the important things is they're also given role models of what they should not aspire to. I taught the Holocaust for many years at Georgetown, which has a great school of international diplomacy and international studies. And I was always afraid there would be somebody in my classroom 
who was taking notes as to the mistakes that the Nazis made along the way. And when he or she became, and normally was he, became potentate in Africa or Asia, as he was the son of a prince and the son of people with power, he would say, well, if I'm going to do a genocide, I'm not going to commit this mistake, not going to commit that mistake, and the like. But I hope that our students internalize precisely what they should aspire to become and what they should aspire not to become. And the other thing is to understand that um, they have to do something. And that silence itself always helps the oppressor and never the victim. I, I also feel that um, when kids begin to examine this history, Holocaust and human behavior, um, they begin to see uh, themselves um, in, in, in this history in many ways. They, they, they connect to the, the choices. And begin to understand the role of uh, victims and, and, and perpetrators. Um, but by studying this history, they begin to see uh, the role of bystanders. And um, we begin to understand that there are more players of bystanders, uh, not only in history, but uh, even in today's world. And that that's not a neutral position. Kids begin to understand that uh, they too are, are players and uh, can impact uh, the situations uh, around them and by knowing that and 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 hearing stories of people who did not act that allowed this history to happen they begin to understand that whole notion that this is not inevitable that they have a, a responsibility and that uh, that that idea that they don't have any choices uh, dissipates when they begin to think and study about the range of choices that were possible uh, kids want to be good, and as Michael uh, discovered and, and, and shared these models, they want to emulate that. They need permission to be good, and this history gives us many opportunities to think about prevention, to think about participation, and to think about the choices they make uh, uh, to help create the kind of world uh, they would like to see for themselves um, and, and in their future. Right. Elaine? Uh, yes, I, I just to echo what has been said, invariably uh, when students start to explore bystander behavior and rescue behavior, um, they bring the words to the present. So uh, we usually end a Facing History course or, or unit of study with um, a unit on choosing to participate which is looking at how you can strengthen democracy, how you can participate in your community in a positive way. And the lessons of the Holocaust are right there with students. Um, I can just recall students saying, we don't want to be bystanders. So the vocabulary, they've internalized the vocabulary. And just like what Michael said, the role models of people they don't want to emulate. Um, and there's a certain um, there's a certain resurgence of, of trying to be positive in, in their community. Um, and that's where upstanders behavior comes. Um, it it, it's that marriage between the emotions, um, uh, the emotional engagement and the content which lets them uh, which lets them see themselves now in 
in a new way in their community. And Annie? Um, I think the point that bystanding becomes a negative um, after studying this, this material is really interesting and important. Um, and students in a in a city like Los Angeles, students are often told by their parents, just stay out of it. If you walk, you know, students who, my students used to have to walk through sort of a dangerous territory to get to school, they would be told, you know, keep, keep to yourself. And so this really goes against that, and not that we're trying to put students in danger, but thinking about how to give them a voice, at least about things they care about. Um, and to have a voice, I think students need awareness, um, they need knowledge, they need um, confidence, they need to feel they can be articulate about something. And I think the depth with which you can go into the Holocaust gives them some of those tools to then apply to something they personally care about. So I think it's very important that a Holocaust unit might be connected to, as Elaine was saying, something like choosing to participate, where students um, go beyond the history and look at something in the present that they would like to impact or affect, so that a sort of a project-based um, ending to the unit where students get to research deeply into something they already care about um, so they can find their passion and hopefully make a difference. Thank you. Well, this time has really flown by. It's been great to hear everybody's comments, but we are coming to an end now. Um, so a few uh, notifications, reminders. There, this webinar will be a full video recording available immediately on connectedlearning.tv along with some other curated content, some of the links that, um, that may help you find the resources that have been mentioned during the course of the webinar. Um, and these resources will also be available on the Learn, Teach, Share blog that is run out of the Southern California um, Regional Office for Facing History and Ourselves. Um, this does wrap up our second webinar in the series. Uh, we hope you'll join us next week. We're going to shift our attention to a piece of literature and look at To Kill a Mockingbird and how that can empower students by building in the conversations around race, class, and gender and what that can do to help students develop their voice and their sense of agency. If you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. Um, you can use, again, can we use the, the hashtags on Twitter of Connected Learning and Upstander. You can um, visit connectedlearning.tv to sign up for the email newsletter and uh, invite other people to join again next week when we have our next webinar. Um, thanks again to all of our speakers on the call. Each of you had so much to say and we really appreciate it. Um, and I look forward to two more great conversations this month. Thank you.